Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom is built for your psychology and your biology, meeting you where you are. Noom Weight uses psychology. That's why they say losing weight starts with your brain. But it also takes into account your unique biological factors, which also affect weight loss success. The program helps you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have cravings. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Plus, check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Good whatever time of the day it is for you listening to this podcast, sitting at your cubicle slash bus seat slash train seat slash other transportation device slash treadmill. Oh my god, why are you sitting on a treadmill? You need to be running, son or daughter. Matt, Joan, and I will be performing at the Just for Laughs Toronto Festival, JFL42. If you go to jl42.com, you can find out how to get uh, passes to come see the Nerdist Podcast in Toronto at the end of September. I want to say it's the 27th or 8th. I should probably know that before I started recording this. But here we are. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast was brought to you by Stamps.com. Guys, in the time it takes you to go to the post office, you could probably build a portal gun out of household devices like a dowel and PVC pipe and then some WD-40. I don't know why. Everything always has WD-40 in it. So why not use that time to build that awesome thing? If you have stamps.com, you don't have to go to the post office. You have a bunch of extra time. You can print stamps for the exact postage you need from any computer using your stamps.com account. It's everything from stamps to shipping labels, the instant you need them, 24-7, and then you can just hand your mail to the mailman and say, I am so pleased I don't have to go to that place that you have to go back to work to, but then don't make him feel too bad because he probably would prefer to be handing his mail to someone else. And he's probably a nice guy. So why do you have to shit on our mail carriers? Don't worry about it. Just get stamps.com. Everything will be fine. You'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, there's a special offer when you use the promo code NERDIST. There's a no-risk trial. $110 bonus offer includes a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. Don't wait. Before you do anything else, go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in NERDIST. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. This episode is Henry Rollins, who was a delight. You know, it's funny. I thought I was kind of a music nerd before, but I realized... After sitting in this episode with Henry and Jonah Ray and one of our nerd turns from the upcoming Nerdist Channel show, Nerd Turns, Kyle Clark, uh, Matt Myra had to work, that uh, I am not a music nerd at all. <laughs> it turns out I like music, 
but I am not a music nerd. Uh, the detail of information that these guys have was incredible. Also, Henry, huge workaholic, so we had a lot to talk about there. But it was really fun to be on the podcast and watch people who care so passionately about music uh, just go back and forth. So it was really—I I don't even think I said that much this episode. It was—I was—I was a fascinated audience member. Also, side note: uh, Kyle Clark, huge, huge, huge Henry Rollins fan, which is one of the reasons why I had him on. Um, he, he's so much of a Henry Rollins fan that he and his family would listen to Rollins albums. Uh, that they ended up calling him Uncle Henry and their family. So it was really adorable to watch him meet his idol, his ultimate idol. Uh, And I thought he handled himself pretty well, actually. It was really cool to watch. So here you go, Nurse Podcast, episode number 255, with Henry Rollins. Now entering Nerdist.com. Here's this record, and therefore, this one and this one, and Killing Joke, and this guy and these guys, and and it's a it's a theory, and and I know Simon. Uh, I did a whole radio show based on that book. It was easy because like you, you like Killing Joke and this band, and I wrote him. Yeah. Kyle, sit sit over here. Close the door and sit over here. But I I wrote him, uh, and you know he has a website, and I don't know if he knows me, so I wrote him and said, hey, uh, you know I got a radio show. I'm doing this whole thing based on Rip It Up and Start Again. Oh, right. And he wrote me back immediately. So he's like. Wow, I'm such a fan. This is so cool of you because the the playlist is unimpeachable. It's like perfect. He makes connections on stuff that I never would have yeah. put together. Like when yeah. he does Wire and Mission of Burma in that same chapter, and yeah. once you sort of <laughs> see those outliers run together, you're like, oh yeah, yeah. No, he connects dots. Yeah, he he's British, moved to New York. Now he lives out here. Really, he lives in the Valley, I think. Yeah, because I I wrote him. I said, "How would you like to like cover for me?" Because I'm on tour all the time. Come in and do my radio show. Oh, that'd be awesome. You bring in the music, and we'll just hype it. And because my state KCRW, they know how to promote that. Yeah. And my listeners would just be like, you know, hyperventilating. Have you read <laughs> Retromania? He just sent it newest to me. book. Yeah. Um, the Jesse Thorne did a fucking phenomenal interview with him when it came out. Because oh, he's a fascinating guy, Simon. You know, we've had some and he interesting emails. Everything. Yeah. Like he's got that whole rave history book he's got a whole hip-hop history book that post-punk one like he's he, he does his homework when he yeah. writes a book yeah that, that's why i enjoy him you know there's two different versions of rip it up to start again there's the u.s version with public image on the cover mm-hmm. then there's the uk version that's kind of a yellow red collection of letters okay they're very different edits you really want the uk version read it again mm-hmm. uh the u.s version is shorter the writing is different and i wrote him i said did you dumb this down for America? So my publisher told me to simplify See, it. That seems so weird because it's, it's about still 30, so it's, high-minded. It's about thirty percent less book, and the UK version you'll lo- you'll love it, but it's way more fastballs. It just assumes you've heard that catalog. It doesn't lay it out for you. It just goes, okay, you know, Killing Joke, you know, Gang of Four. Here we go. The two chapters that really blew me away, or that he spends, I think. Six- 30-something pages just on Scritty Politty. Yeah. <laughs> and just putting together that first single, and you're just like, you're really going to town on this. That, re- that made me re-examine their music. I'd never given them much and time. Scritty Politty? Yeah. Get closer to the mic. Right. Scritty Politty. He wrote about Scritty Politty? He did. Like, a full chapter. A, music writer. a lot of music writers are just jack-off artists in yeah. that 
They love they love records. I mean, you get me on the topic of music writing wise. I'll write for a year and a half with nonstop. It's easy. It's fun. Yeah. It just because you're putting a lot of words on the screen doesn't mean it's any good. And so there's a lot of music magazine music books that are just like because they'll publish it. <laughs> but some writers really get it. Where you read it and you're like, wow, I just learned something, and I have all these records, and I'm going to go listen to them right now, and I'm never going to hear them the same again. He's that guy. He really is that good. He's what, worth what checking book, out. What book was he saying? I can't uh, this is through. Rip It Up and Start Again okay. from Simon Reynolds. But definitely read the British version. Yeah, it, it, you'll see it on Amazon. It's yellow and red. It, the U.S. version is just a photo of a public image. But this one is like this arty cover, and that's the one I initially oh, bought rad. in the U.K. Then I saw the American version. And I got it because it had different chapter headings. I said, well, I'll get it to be the completest. Then I A-B'd them. I'm like, wait a minute. And that's when I wrote. So I said, what is this? He said, <laughs> better for the American audience. I said, either you're very cynical or you wanted to get in, your advance. It's a weird decision to did make. He, did he write stuff? Has he written stuff about you that you were like, oh, I guess I did do that. I didn't realize that. I don't know if he's written about me. I think I mentioned Black Flag is mentioned yeah. in that book, I, not for very long and I don't think anything that would get my hackles up. But uh, I'm sure he could write about me and make me see a few He things. has that sort of little write-up comparing post-punk to hardcore. Yeah. And how you watch sort of the artistic evolution of one genre into two very different genres across countries. Yeah. And I actually read Rip It and Start Again right after uh, American Hardcore. Hmm. So it was yeah. sort of interesting going back to back and just seeing the variations on it. Yeah, for a guy who's such a fan of music as I am, I don't read much. Uh, I don't read many music books. That's I like used half to. of what I read. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I, I used to, and um, I miss it. In that, I I should. A friend of mine, Ian Mackay, you know Ian yeah. Fugazi and all that. Ian, you know his whole family; they're all readers. But Ian reads a lot of music books. And it shows, like you'll get into some topic like the history of Detroit music from the Amboy Dukes to the Stooges. Ian is like pulling out bands. He goes, oh, I got this record. You're like, who's this band? And he's, he just gets into something. I just buy a lot of records and listen. He does the, like, the real homework. Fascinating. Like the backtracking. Like, yeah. He's like A to Z on Hendrix. Like yeah. we, we both grew up. That's how we became friends over Stingray Bicycles and Jimi Hendrix <laughs> records. We know, same neighborhood. But we're like, I had one record. He had the other. We'd trade and hang out. He's a good yeah. man. But um, he, he's so conversant on different sessions. Just, and I I have those books, and I kind of sort of read them. But Ian's like read them, underlined them, read the second edition. <laughs> he drills down on that stuff. And I, I just, I don't have Can to. Can I make a recommendation on yeah. one? Is Sonic Alchemy. It's oh. about the evolution of the rock producer oh, on wow. albums. And they go from uh, Glenn John's. And Martin Hannett, all the way through, they talk about George Martin's relationship with the Beatles across oh. their career. Just phenomenally well-researched, but very accessible. It's probably the most lent-out book I own. Oh, okay. It's, no, I'll, it's I'll get it. Because I, I, I enjoy that understanding the producer-artist relationship. I've hung out with George Martin, like, you know, for an hour years ago. And I was at dinner with him because I knew his press lady. And everyone at the table was afraid to ask him a Beatles question because he's, you know, he's not. <laughs> well, because he just asked how many times a day yeah. he asked, him, you knew the Beatles. He, he's probably <laughs> tired. He's jet lagging. And he's, you know. And so I broke the ice because everyone was like, someone's got to say something. I said, you know what? Here we go. I said, I've got mo a mono mix bootleg of the White Album. 
what's up, you know, what's, and he was like, oh, here. and everyone kind of went, oh, yeah. good. And you, the look on his face, like, oh, really? The, <laughs> the food was so good. <laughs> and, and he was very polite, but he, he, you could tell he didn't want to talk. And he goes, those are the mixes I made for the boys for them to take home at night. Because if you, t- if you look at uh, interviews with the guys who work with Jimi Hendrix, they were very informative. They said, we worked more on the mono mix. That's where we put all of our energy because you got to make some real decisions in mono. Like, okay, the, those drums are bounced onto that track. You're done with the drums. He said, stereo, we only did for America. And so in September on my little radio show, I'm, I'm, I'll be on tour. But uh, there's five Saturdays in September, two, three, four, and five, the, the last four. I'm doing all Hendrix in the first hour. Basically chronological order. So week one is... Are You Experienced? Mono. Second album, second week is Axis Bold of Love, Mono. Third week is Electric Ladyland, but reconstructed in sequence from bootlegs, alt mixes, um, alt takes. And then the fourth week is like Henry's favorite picks from his bootlegs and, you know, this from that one and that from that one. Just kind of like my, my, my favorites. And um, the, mono, the mono version of Are You Experienced is just one of the best things. And you know the album inside out, but when you hear it in mono... When you hear that vocal coming right down the center and you hear the guitars really thick and punching, it's like hearing the Velvet Underground album in mono. It's just a whole other, it's a whole other thing. Like Beatles in mono, it's a whole other thing. And apparently that's where these guys, where the, where the brilliance came in because they have to make real decisions because you got to put every, dump everything onto one track. The first time so, I noticed that was when Pet Sounds got re-released. They released the CD so that it was the Stereo, stereo mix and, and then the mono mix and yeah. it was just that was the first time I was like oh Jesus like yeah. this is a whole different game I wrote after the stereo version came out I wrote David Thomas of Perubu who's a you know a Beach Boys fan I wrote him I said so what do you think of the stereo and uh, he said something very poetic I have the email somewhere he said I'm I'm dancing or something like that because he <laughs> he's such a fan of pet sounds and he's at uh, he, he actually with Perubu at one point covered Surfer Girl his, with an accordion beautiful so um, what, are we, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> or, 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 We've been are, talking about or, it. Or are we all? No, we're in it. Yeah. We're in it. We in it right now? We're, we're in it. it. You know, Kyle is, uh, is an intern at our comedy theater, and, it, and, it, and he's been helping us out on the show. And, and uh, you know, and Black Flag in particular, and you have been very influential to him. So I was like, oh, you should come in, you know, just because, uh, you know, Kyle has granular knowledge about you. Jonah probably has a lot of knowledge uh, about you. And... We, I, for some reason, you know, I, I, when I grew up in the eighties, uh, I just, I was such a square kid. I just missed punk altogether. Hmm. It just didn't, I wasn't, I, I, I didn't, I never felt like, like, Oh, I really got to express myself. Like I liked the shittiest fucking, like when you said Scritty Pluto, I was like, Oh, a perfect way. I love that song. <laughs> yeah. You know, without, without you, didn't, I wouldn't have to find the layers in a book. I'm like, Oh yeah, it's fun. You know? So just a super square kid. So I've always kind of wanted to understand you know, what is the driving force behind it? And, you know, so we all have kind of different points of view and you're, you're at the center yeah, of that right cool. now. Yeah. So, uh, when I, when I try to think about, when I think about you and kind of what you do, I, I don't, you're one of those guys like, well, you can't really categorize him. He's kind of a journeyman, you know, like you, you sort of, you sort of float around and everything's kind of related, but, but you, but you kind of push yourself for, through, for different experiences. Well, it's, it's very easy, uh, to, to figure out why I do what I do. And, and I could kind of uh, stretch it out and make it sound really cool, but it, it comes from a very blunt, perhaps unflattering place. I come from the world of minimum wage work, which is no bad place to be, but, you know, it's tough. I come from 
scooping ice cream, parking your car, tearing tickets at movie theaters. And I left high school after I graduated in 1979, and I kind of set my jaw and grimly waded into the full-time minimum wage working world, like 50, 60 hours a week as you do at those jobs. You knock yourself out cross-eyed. Had a, a used VW Fastback in a small apartment, which I, I lived in the living room and rented the back half to my, my friend I grew up with, uh, my friend John. And that was my life. Like, okay, it's going to be minimum wage. My feet are going to hurt. I'll be able to buy two or three singles a week because, you know, it was an hour's pay to buy an import punk rock single. And this will be my life. It's, this, it's going to be tough. And then I got a chance to audition for the band Black Flag. Mm -hmm. And I came out here to California, summer of 1981, all of a sudden the singer in this band. And so I, I've never really lost my minimum wage desperation and eagerness to stay employed, work, and keep eating. And that kind of ferocity a lot of we indie band types had it kept us on the road in very dire conditions. You just want to do it so much. You just kind of brave, you know, whatever's coming at you, which some days were, it was pretty monumental resistance. Like yeah. When the cops and the local government people show up, this is, it gets to be very serious because they can just arrest you. Yeah. Anyway, um, I stayed with everything. And as I watched a lot of people in this town literally die, overdose, suicide, it was very sad. But I, I kind of stayed not insane and, driving ahead. And so when in the 80s, when Hollywood came, hey, you're crazy. You want to be in a movie? I'm like, yeah. Can you act? Yeah. Can you pay? Because I'm in Silver Lake starving. I'll try any damn thing. And so to this day, I go at everything with, yeah, I'll try that. Because if there's free lunch and a pen, <laughs> it sounds like a good deal to me. And that kind of work ethic has served me very well, ultimately. But what on the outside looks like a very eclectic, oh, he's radio, TV, he writes for this, he does documentaries with Nat Geo, and on and on, which is all true. Yeah, It's me just going, yeah, I'll try that, because I like to get up every day with like eight things to do. I don't, I don't do vacations or time off. I'm really. the same exact way, and I think part of, one of the reasons why I was really excited to talk to you is because I see, I see myself and a lot of the stuff that you do, and I, I guess I'm trying to learn from myself, too. When people say, what do you do? Go, I don't know. I host some shows, and I'm stand-up, and I do a podcast, and I run a company, and I don't know what I do. I guess I'm a comic, you know? And yeah, so it's just trying to figure out, like, what is that thing that drives us to take on eight things at once every morning? For me, you know, uh, simple, you know, curiosity, anger. Uh, in that, you know, you, you want to know something, so it gets you down the road. You, you're angry at something, like it wakes you up in the morning like like i want to figure out what where that guy gets off saying that yeah you know it's not i'm not going to throw a rock through his window that's not what i'm about but it's going to make me go to that country on my own oh all the iranians hate your freedom that sounds like such a load of crap to me i better go find out that's why i went to tehran aggressive truth seeker well you know you, you what you're trying to scare me about a country that you the president won't even go to i got this i'll go for you and so I went to Tehran. I'm no tough guy, and I'm no expert on Iran, but I went on my own steam. It was not an easy visa to get. I had to go all the way to Dubai to get it. But I got it, and I spent a week in Tehran. I'm still here. Uh, don't, don't ever go to Pakistan. So I went to Pakistan. I was there when Bhutto was assassinated. It was one intense week. Oh, my God. And I'm not trying to impress you. Like, I, like I was, I'm not a tough guy. I'm not brave. I'm not looking for a fight with anybody. But my anger informs my curiosity. Like, oh, I shouldn't go there? Really? <laughs> Like, I, now I got to go because you're, you're making it like I'm supposed to be afraid. I'm not going to, I don't want to fear humans on the planet. Like, life's too short. And so I do this kind of stuff out of, you know, a, a desire to understand, 
to find myself on the ground in these places. And so I can go on to, ultimately, I'm going to take all this information to a stage and inform an audience. Here's what I saw in Afghanistan. I'm not going to bore you with the books I've read about Afghanistan because you can go to Barnes and Noble and buy them too. I'll, but I'll tell you about the two times I was there. Again, I'm not an expert, but I've been to Kabul. It was different than the book I read about Kabul. And so I'd r much rather have the boots on the ground intel about a place. And so that's my motivation to, hey, you want to write for Rolling Stone Australia? Yeah. I got fingers. What do I want to write about? Because why not? Life's really short. You might as well sign up for a bunch of stuff. And when you suck, they'll let you know. They'll fire you. Yeah. Or you won't make the audition. And I go into auditions all the time. Like, <laughs> get out of our office. <laughs> and you, you know, with a lump in your throat, you go into some massive parking garage like the one we're sitting above now, and you you go home again. Yeah. <laughs> you said something once that I heard that kind of fundamentally changed how I look at the entertainment business. I was very young. Um, uh, you know, and I kind of had this like, man, an artist has got to, you know, cause I'm a comic. And so for me, it was like standups doing small coffee house rooms. Like an artist has got to fucking be in the trenches and starve and not, not take money from big com. And you did a series of commercials or, or a commercial and, and, and some people were like, oh man, Henry Rollins totally sold out. Cause he did these commercials. And you're like, I didn't sell out. This is a business decision. As long as I didn't compromise my fundamental belief system, sure. this is just, a, I'm a, I have, I need to, I have, I need to work. Yeah. And I was like, oh fuck. Yeah. You don't. Just the, the concept of just making money and a company is paying you does not mean you have sold out. Compromising your ideals means you've sold out, but, right. that, but not just getting paid for something. And I do pick and choose those opportunities in that I, I don't drink alcohol. And I, I just think it's, you know, the man s sells it out there to keep people mediocre. I, I'm not trying to keep you from your next Guinness. Oh, I don't drink, yeah. Well, I'm just saying, I'm like, that's not even the, the point I'm trying to make. I'm saying I would never tell you, hey, don't drink. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't drink for political reasons. I, I'm not interested in alcohol or, or its effects. I got drunk in 10th grade. I didn't like it. But for me, it's what they hand out to people on the, on the street level to keep them stupefied, not voting, not reading, and not drilling down. Right. You know, and that's just, it's, it's, it's SOMA, you know, for society. <laughs> it should be way more looking at their government, looking at their media. So when the alcohol companies, and they have, come to me, hey, do a VO for this. I'm like, no. Well, we'll offer you this much money. Well, that's nice. I could use that money. But I can't get behind that because I'm not that guy. That so, would be selling out. That's my definition of selling out. So if you watch television for longer than five minutes, you might see an ad for the car Infinity. Um, I'm that voice. I'm the voice of all the Infinity ads. And um, for years, UFC, uh, the uh, pre-fight stuff on mm -hmm. the, well, it used to be on Spike, now it's on FX. That's me for years and years. It's great work. I love it. I like the people I work with. I like the copy. I like what we're doing. And I, I'm, I don't really have pride, but I like my work. I listen back. I go, like, I'm, I like my job I did. Yeah. Tomorrow at noon, I'll be at Margarita Mix Studios. I'll be doing voiceover on a documentary out of Washington, D.C. I do a lot of VO for everything from Batman cartoons with, <laughs> with Andrea Romano. I know Andrea I, Romano very, for 20 years. She's great, right? And Love I've been, her. I've been doing stuff. And you know how fun she is. For those of you two who don't know, she's just one of the more amazing people you'll meet. More energy than I don't know where she is. And gets a great animation voice and a great voice director. Yeah, and she's the best. So much fun. And she always says, Thanks for playing. She says, like, let's play. Yep. He's never worked with her, so always play. And I've been doing every version of Batman 
Batman Beyond, Bat, you know, whatever. With Mad Andrea. Stan was a great character. Like just okay. yelling incoherently. Whenever she needs a yelling and angry guy, she calls me. She and, had me play. I played Green Arrow for her on the Batman. There you go. And she was it was she was amazing. Yeah. And I, you know, Green Lantern, all kinds of stuff. And you're lucky if you're in her Rolodex because she will use you again. Yeah. I mean, which is great. You know, we need this work. And so that's work I, I say yes to. I show up immediately. If I'm home, anything she wants of me, I, I would mow her lawn. I really like her. And she's been so loyal to me. And uh, next door in this building over here, or the next building over, American Dad, I, I've mm-hmm. been on a number of those. Um, Adventure Time, all kinds of things. It's really fun work. Yeah. So Adventure Time's a great show. Yeah. Oh, that guy thinks out of the box. He's, he's, he's fantastic. Yeah. But it's it's work and you take it and and one time i had the honor to interview christopher walken and i read somewhere that he said i like to wake up every day with a script in my hand which i loved i love that ethic and so i said i had him on my show i had a show on ifc and i said so mr walken with all due respect i'm a fan and i buy some of your dvds on amazon for 99 cents each because i can't give them away you show up in these films that are not exactly godfather 2 or streetcar named desire and um, is it because you like to show up with a script in your hand every day? And he said, yeah. He said, you should see the films that can't even get distribution. He goes, I work in films that, you know, there's no budget because I'm a working class guy. I work for a living. So if there's a film and I got time and I got no work, I go and I work. And I said, I, I really admire that. He goes, he, and he just went off. He, he said, there's films that you'll never see. They're just, they won't get distribution. You know, like Attack of the Bugs 8. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll show up for that. And some people might say, oh, you're just a hack actor. Another person will say, no, he comes from, that's his neighborhood. He, he says, I, I come from working class parents, working class everything. I'm a working actor. I really admire, that was really inspirational to me. And that's, I show up to a lot of stuff because I wake up every day and I want to do stuff. And that's a big part of my engine. Yeah. Is like being pulling my weight in the world and being gainfully employed. Can you imagine? I can't. When sometimes when people just wake up and they go, eh, I don't really have anything to do today, I go, How do you do that? I can't do that. They fucking go crazy. Yeah I, yeah, I know a lot of people, you know, the people I associate with are kind of tightly wired like that. They're like, a t- Time off? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, no, time off. Do you, so, so my question to you is, do you think we're? Do you think besides that that much better idea of you know we all like to stay busy, we like to stay work, we like to contribute to the world? Do you think we're running from anything that we constantly have to be distracted with stuff? Oh, I am. My assistant calls me out on it all the time. She goes, "You know why you tour so much?" I said, "Because I have great work ethic." She goes, "Now you're running." She goes, "One day when you have the guts, you'll actually move into your house and slow down." But she says, "You don't have the guts yet." It's so hard to be still. And I was like. You're you're really kind of bumming me out. I, I <laughs> That's a full I service like, assistant. GI Joe, fifteen years, it's been yelling at me. Um, <laughs> I, I thought I was like, you know, just the guys going out there. She said, Henry, and that's all good, and you're good at it. People like you, and you like them, and that's fantastic. And you you've earned all that. You've earned that audience. But you got to learn to deal with yourself. And every time you go on tour, that's a way to kind of just kind of put that on layaway. And, and in a way, she's right. Because when you, you know, Bruce, I read a fascinating interview with Bruce Springsteen. I don't know the guy, but he seems real, real okay in my yeah. book, real forthright. It's a two-part Rolling Stone interview. They, they, you know, he went long, they printed every word. 
He said, when I finished the Born in the USA tour, which is like, you know, 800 shows or something, he said, I, I drove a tour bus. I was in a tour bus looking for a home in America and I couldn't find a house I wanted to move into. Then I figured out it's not a problem. I can't find a house. I can't get off the road. Oh, wow. So he went into therapy. He had to sit down with someone and go, okay, help me figure out how to, you know, get into second gear and just kind of cool it. And he had to kind of learn how to land. And I've been touring, averaging over 100 shows a year for 31 years. Jesus. Uh, 27 books, 50 radio broadcasts a year, you know, whatever else I get up to and say yes to. And it's a metabolism that I, there's no way I'm not partially medicating something else by doing that. Sure. I mean, everyone's doing something to balance. It, everyone, I think people are trying to get normal. You know, just you want to get through your day without like losing your mind. Some people hit the treadmill for like two hours. That evens them out. Some people, alcohol, sex, crossword puzzles. I mean, some you find a way to, or some people, they invent Warner Brothers. I mean, like people <laughs> find a way to kind of get their yayas out. For me, it's been the road, constant movement, the obligation of a show every night, that 8 p.m. Damoclean dagger over the head of like, go out there and make it right. I love that obligation. And when I'm away from it, it's hard. Yeah, I, I, was, at, I was at a party once years ago, and there was a teenage girl there. She was a young actress, and the, the, the party had set up this painting studio. It was one of those like, oh, people can come in and paint if they want to. And she was painting something, and someone said something about... Uh, Something, something about art or something, and she, she just kind of casually threw off, like, you know, I, we, we engage in art a lot because art is a distraction that keeps us from killing ourselves. And at the time, I was like, what a, what a ridiculous teenage mm. piece of shit. And the older I get, I'm sort of like, yeah, we're just trying to distract ourselves from dying constantly. Some people think a lot. And if, you know, Nietzsche, who you don't really have to take much past 11th grade, but he said... The, the, the unhappy person in the village, he's the smart one because he sees a lot. And, and it's not always good news. He goes, all the people with the big grins on their faces, he says, they're the idiots. They're blessed. They're having a great time because they, they're not seeing it all. And that's a little cynical. Voltaire said the same thing too, basically. I'm sure a lot of those big thinkers have their own version. <laughs> I'm sure Sartre has, has yeah. a version of that. Yeah. But it's true. If you really look look at things in a wide screen, well, you could be bummed out about it or very energized and angered and motivated to turn things around or whatever. I, I think a balance can be struck where you don't have to. But the, when you see a guy like uh, Bacon, the painter, you know, he the guy would wake up every day with like four paintbrushes in his hands. He paints it till he fairly keeled over. A guy like Picasso you know, just painted and painted people like Twain, Henry Miller. These people wrote until their hands came off. There's people who never stop. And there's no, like Don Rickles. He's probably on stage tonight somewhere. He could be. Yeah. He could well, be. It's not about money for him. It's about this is what I do. This is who I am. And this is how he gets through the day. Have you ever talked to him, by the way? No, I've been I've been in the same room with him. Uh, I was at a dinner. He was he kind of speaks at every year. Yeah. I was going out with a gal who is a friend of a guy who brings him to this dinner every year. Anyway, I was I was ten feet from him, which was <laughs> kind of fun. I had <laughs> one conversation with him once, and someone introduced me to him as a comic, and he was sitting in a chair, and he just started talking about comedy from a place of like 
youth and energy and like just giving me advice that I did, that I wanted but was afraid to ask right. for. And I just I ended up just like getting on my knees and he was just in this chair and he was just saying, here's what audiences want. You got to do this and you got to find this. And it was just like it was so it made me love him so much more because I could tell like. This is not a job. This is he. He. This is he lives it. This yeah. is what he's truly passionate about. The real guys. You know, you'll see these like guy like uh, uh, anyone performing at Las Vegas, like you know Edie Gourmet or right. whoever. These people are like older than paper, <laughs> but they're doing the show tonight. I mean Wayne Newton. I I don't know the guy, but I bet you he's on stage tonight. Money? I think he's probably has enough. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not a money thing. It's it's like Mick Jagger is going to go sing Satisfaction for the eighty million. Or Joan Rivers was here. Was, did, was on the show a couple you ever weeks see ago. That documentary? Yeah, on her? No, which one? The one? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, hers. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. We talked we talked about it, and she's like, if you, she's like, she's seventy nine years old, close to eighty, and she's like, if you can be on stage, why are you not on stage? Yeah, and like that, that me and my assistant went to go see it in the theater, and they said, does anything scare you? And she opens up that calendar, and there's all blank. Yeah. She goes, that scares me. And my assistant poked me. <laughs> <laughs> but the best part of that documentary, she comes in at like, you know, one in the morning from some, like, you know, two sets in an in-store. And she looks at the guy across the, ca- you know, the a check-in and says, make sure to give me a wake-up call at 4 a.m. And you're like, or don't let me sleep past 4.30. And you're like, because she's going to get up, get on a flight, in-store for her book, two sets at some place in minnesota that the next day or like later that day because it's after midnight you're like you know what i gotta salute that i don't know i don't know her i met her daughter once but wow that's that's ferocious years ago i was at mtv uh 1990 something i was talking to matt pinfield wonderful guy. yeah great guy yeah i've known matt forever anyway he calls me hey come up here and be interviewed i was living in new york at the time so i, I take the the train up there we do the thing and i'm leaving to go back down i was living in the village and the courtesy lady from the green room says hey george carlin is in the green room he wants to talk to you and i was in such disbelief i said the george carlin like it must have been george carlin the the used car sale sure and she said yeah like what other one would they be i went well yeah but i just and i walk in and there he is and he was there to promote his next hbo special you know, he's doing a day of press. Yeah. And I walk in and there's George Carlin. And I, I walk up, I, I shake his head, I go, how do you do, Mr. Carlin? And he goes, call me George. I was like, that, that'll be a little difficult, <laughs> but I'll try. And he said, uh, I'm a big fan. I said, uh, come on. <laughs> and he said, you know, I, 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 I love your writing. And I, I, w- I was waiting in line a while ago at Tower Records to get m- one of your books signed. I did an in-store. I said, you waited in line? Yeah, but it was getting late and I was getting cold, so I went home. I said, why didn't you just walk in and get your book signed? He's like, I can't do that, man. That's not cool. Uh, I said, okay. And so we get to talking about things. And I, I said, you know, I, I'm not trying to interview you or anything, man. But, you know, I read uh, that book, that great book on Lenny Bruce. You know, ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bruce, it's a hell of a read. And I said, is it true that you were handcuffed neck with, you know, one pair of cuffs, you, one arm and your arm, you know, you were handcuffed to Lenny Bruce because, you know, apparently Lenny Bruce used some language that was protected by the First Amendment, but they didn't like him. So they arrested him for saying something. Carlin was busted for being underage. Oh. And apparently they were cuffed together in the back of a cop car. I said, is that true? Because it's such a great urban legend. Yeah. legend. It's not like I'm going to get to ask Lenny Bruce. And he said, yes, that's true, but that's not how I met him. Because he said, 
um, Lenny Bruce would gather all us young comics. And I think he said like me and Rodney Dangerfield and all these people. He said, he would say, okay, give me your best stuff. And he would critique us and give us advice. And I said, would he cop material? He goes, no, no, no. He would really, he he didn't want our material. He had his own thing. But he would listen to us and go, okay, you, you never want to do that to a crowd until like, you know, the third joke. Then you whip that one on them. And he gave us advice that is really huge. And he was so generous with his time to young comics. I've never seen that written about Lenny Bruce. And, I, you know, I'm quite a fan. And um, it, it was, and then I had just done a show at the Beacon Theater. And he goes, I'm, gonna do, I'm doing a show at the Beacon Theater. I said, I know. <laughs> the billboards are, you know. It's George Carlin's. The billboards are everywhere. I said, yeah, I, I know. And he, he said, um, you were just there. I said, yeah. He said, did they get the jokes? <laughs> I, I said, what do you mean? He said, like, is it a good room? Do you, do, could you see them? Could they see you? Am I going to be okay? And I'm like, wow. I said, are, you, are we having this conversation? Because <laughs> I was, you know, I flash back to, here's Henry in fourth grade with his copy of AMFM, Class Clown and Occupation Fool, memorizing them as you do. And like, you're asking me? <laughs> I, I walked out of there fairly numb. I took the train back downtown going, wow. It was a huge afternoon for me. Well, huge. And then also you just seeing that, like, that's an artist, like a guy that doesn't matter how much money, doesn't matter how much yeah. success. He doesn't see himself the way right. that other people see him. Still reaching for it. Still trying to find. And, yep. and, and I kind of wonder, because I know you've tried. You've, you've, you've done stand-up before as well. Well, I get up there and I talk. I mean, I, I, I do those shows a lot. I, I don't make jokes all the time. I don't have that talent. But sometimes it's funny what I say in that if it's humorous, I can report about a humorous situation clearly. So I'm not funny. The information's funny. Big, big difference between being funny and being able to say something about a funny situation and make people laugh. It's like the difference between being brave and not having any fear. Right. One is like, I'm going to do that. The other guy's like, I don't care, man. Let's do it. Yeah. That's me. I don't, I don't have any fear, which is an awareness I could probably use. But I make audiences laugh all over the world, but I'm not really trying that hard in that I'm trying to tell you what happened. And the humor kind of follows me home like a dog after Because school. there's truth in comedy. Like that's Yes, but then, when, then you watch Patton Oswalt, who I have to watch sitting down. So I'm standing, I'll collapse. <laughs> because I laugh so much, my inner core goes weak, and yeah. I collapse in a pool of sweat and laughter. I mean, he's that funny to me. But he's a, a comedian, like you're a comedian, where you guys are, you know, you're smart bombs. You, you, you are saying what David Lee Roth calls a result-oriented performance. <laughs> Man! He's got a million of those tight phrases. He's the Mark Twain of Roth. He really has a, a, a crazy grip on English. But I, I, I can. T when I was in North Korea recently, I got stories from that that are, I can make funny because it was funny when I saw the dead body of Kim Il-sung in a glass box and I wanted to turn to my tour spy and say, he winked at me. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you're so getting arrested. <laughs> but, and I, I wanted to say that, but I, you know, you, you will have a problem getting out of the country. <laughs> once you're in Pyongyang, all you're thinking of, I got to get back to Beijing yeah. at some point. So you got to cool it. 
I, I say yeah, like I have any concept of what you're talking about. I'm, I but, live the most sheltered life. Well, but but it's it's one of those places where when you get your visa, you have to with your travel agent, you sign off. Basically, you sign off a form that says if you get arrested, you're on your own. Yeah, we yeah. can't help you. And so, getting back to Beijing is definitely something you really want to do because you really don't want to live your life in Pyongyang unless it changes radically, which I don't think it will. And so. I report to my audiences about that, and it's funny. But then I tell them about the people I saw in the countryside of or that uh, of that country, or the times I've been I've been all over the African continent. I see stuff there, like in southern Sudan. There's the untilled minefield that's still active. There's the farm where the corn is growing through the bodies of dead northern uh, Sudanese soldiers, Jesus. and they use the dead bodies for fertilizer. And they ask you, would you like a bone or a tooth to take away as a souvenir? And I said, no, I got enough of those from going to Phnom Penh, where I <laughs> went through the killing fields and, you know, picked up a lot of bones and teeth. They have little jars you can put them in. Oh, my God. Well, there's a lot of human remains are popping out of the ground there. Anyway, um, that's not always the, the fun, fun, you know, it's not funny. So I go on stage for about two hours or, or so a night and say, here's where I've been. Here's what I saw. And there's laughs along the way. But sometimes, like I did an interview this morning, the guy said, what was the most effed up thing you've ever seen? Notice I'm not cursing on your podcast. You can, though. I, I know, I, and I appreciate that. But um, he said, what's the most screwed up thing you've ever you know, seen? And I said, well, I, to, you know, in this life, we all see a lot of stuff. I said, here's something that really was memorable. I said, I was visiting soldiers at Walter Reed, and I'm walking down, you, know, you have appointments you make. This guy signed, the, he checked the box. You're going to go shake his hand and do a photo. I'm walking down the hallway and a woman comes out of a room and she says, excuse me, can you come in my, my son's room for a minute? It's a mom visiting her son. I go, yeah. I, I walk in and on the wall is a color Xerox photo. She goes, is that you? And I'm like, <laughs> it is me. And it's me standing next to this big, tall, strapping, handsome, young soldier. And I, I said, yeah. I said, where was that taken? Like, you know, I don't remember doing the photo. You do a lot of photos. I guess it's a USO tour I did. She goes, that's Baghdad. I said, okay. And there's a, a young man in the fetal position in bed, hands balled up, drooling, eyes unfocused. I said, is that the guy in the photo? She said, yeah. I said, what's the nature of the injury? She said, traumatic brain injury, lost about 40% of his brain. And he somehow recognizes me. So he makes noises. And she said, would you do a photo of my son? I said, oh, absolutely. So I kind of, I almost have to get in bed with him to do the photo. He can't sit up. So I, I said, move over. And like, I'm trying to you know, <laughs> yeah. make him laugh. So we do the photos. And I, I shook this bald fist. And I said, okay, um, you know, you're going to get out of here one day or I'm going to kick you out of here one day. So hang in there. Yeah. And um, she said, thanks for doing that. I said, hey, uh, you know, thank, it's an honor to meet your son. She said, well... I said, I'll, I said, I'll never forget it. She said, well, he won't remember it because he goes into convulsions all the time and he's due for one any minute now. And after the convulsions, he rarely remembers anything. And um, you realize this woman's going to be putting diapers on her son until the first one of them dies. When she dies, she stops putting the diapers on. When he dies, she stops putting the diapers on. And so when I, and I've told that story a, a few times on stage, you hear the crickets. I mean, there's it, nothing funny about it. And so 
um, that in that in travel to places like Uganda, Sudan, Haiti, Cuba, these places I go, informs a lot of what I talk about on stage, what I write about, what what my photos are in my in my photo book. That's what is in the photos. Everywhere from Burma to Sudan, whatever, wherever else, Iran, all these places I go. And so it's not always funny all the time. If, if someone said, go on a stage and do stand-up and be funny all the time, I'd be terrified. Or sometimes when you do the TV show, hey, do five minutes of stand-up. I'm like, oh, no, because I don't have the... And the dog said, I don't have any of that. <laughs> I know, but it's just... And it's, I'm not putting it down. No, not I, at all. It's I, just I, I funny. I to, did have it. It's just so funny to hear, like, you know... You know, like uh, you all go, go, you, you go, you're going to minefields and you're seeing, you know, you're seeing the most difficult things that a human being would ever have to see and experience. And you're like, but stand up is really scary. It's kind of scary. <laughs> but it just to, to make everyone laugh every eight seconds. And I've watched so many talented people do it. I've been to a few comedy shows. Sure. And I'm like, not with a 10 foot pole. Because some of those people say, hey, Henry, like next week we're doing a thing at the Upright Citizens Brigade. Like, yeah. Come on and beat. I'm like, like, come on and do 10 minutes. Do 10 minutes? What is this, porn? <laughs> Wish I could it, do 10 it, minutes. It's just not, it's just, but I know people like that. Like my, my pal Janine Garofalo. Of course. She comes into town and she goes, hey, I'm going to go do a thing at a show. I go, oh, are the flyers up? She goes, no, I got a call like 10 minutes ago. I'm going to go do a thing at Largo or whatever. Yeah. I'm like, really? You just get a call? I go, that's how you people slut about you. Because for me, it's an agent. We do a, a, the five interviews. The poster goes up. The drums are rolled out. Yeah. You know, we bring out the goat. We slaughter it and offer it to the sun. You know, all this stuff happens before I do a show because it's, it's booked for weeks in advance. And she goes, yeah, I got to call. I'm going to go do 20 minutes. So I went with her. And it was her, Sarah Silverman, who is ridiculously funny. Yeah. And all these kind of young, funny young people whose names I'm forgetting who were did their seven minutes and they were quite nice. Sarah was like, you know, just hilarious. And Ginny was great because she mixes her thing with uh, she's sharply barbed politically. It's, it's a good me. It's a, it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun thing to do because it doesn't really require much. Like you can just go do it. Like, right. Oh, I wrote some stuff down. I'll just go try well, it. She would go on stage with a notebook. notebook. But she goes, okay, I wrote this in my hotel room today. Let me see. No wrong page. And the, I'd be afraid to do that in front of my audience. Uh, and, and everyone was patient, and including me. And then she did the thing, and it, it, was, it was hilarious. And you're like, oh, but she actually read it off paper. And it was just a looser environment than I, I guess I allow myself to have. How have do you, you, how, oh, go ahead, John. Uh, have you done ASCAP monologues at UCB Theater? No, I've never walked in the building. Oh, okay, because I know uh, Ian did them recently. Yes, he did. Yeah, and he loved it. Yeah, and seems he sent like me a photo you'd be... of it. Uh, <laughs> well, he was with all these people, and he, he had a great time. That's great. And uh, in fact, he 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 wrote me yesterday. He sent me his new album. It's really good. Is it a new Evans? Yep. Oh, it's great. so good. Uh, it comes great. out in a few months, but uh, he gave me the, you know, I got the hookup. You got the, I'm, you're, I'm, uh, you're, you're in. For 30 you're years, in. I hope that happens. <laughs> uh, he's speaking up in Frisco next week. I'm going up with my girlfriend to he go is? see him speak. Yeah, he's doing a lecture about the Fugazi bootleg releases. Oh. P.S. No one says Frisco. Oh, that website, that was years in the making, that thing. It's, it's so good. It's insane. Oh, it's great. It's like, so good. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I saw it before they unveiled it. You know, they were working on it, and I was at Discord one day, and he goes, hey, you know, check this out. This is... I go, you cross-referencing songs and photos. And I go, when does this come? He goes, we're going to roll it out in about six It's weeks. got that same feel as that Neil Young run that yeah. came out a couple years Neil's ago. Neil's got a full-time guy. You know, he's got, Neil has, like, he has his first lyric sheets from eighth grade. He kept everything. 
and Neil has a ranch like north of here. Yeah. And apparently, I know a guy from Warner Brothers who when used to be his product manager who would go there to the ranch and like, okay, Neil, what are we doing this year? Okay, well, how do we, well, what's, what's the cover going to be? And I said, what's that place like? He said he's got this amazing bit of property with a guy who logs every single show. Like you say, I want to hear... You know, pick a song. Okay, well, we have 80 versions of that. There's one with Emmylou Harris. There's the Crazy Horse version. There's the solo version from the album that never came out. There's the version he did with, you know, the the guy from Motley Crue. There's the version that, you know, he just, he kept everything. Because what they wanted to do was the, the box set of Neil Young, like volume one. And he could never decide on the configuration. He'd come up with one and then scrap it at the last minute. Because there's so much of it. Because he literally has played with everyone and he kept it all. He has that the Massey Hall seventy one where it's just him really early on. Right. That's that's phenomenal. It's just I've been in, I, I walked into Massey Hall to put my hand on the stage just because because Charlie Parker once stood there and I've never played the Massey Hall in Toronto, mm -hmm. but I've driven by it and I said it's, it's, I was doing radio and someone so that's the Massey. I said, can we walk? Hold on, it's Canada, so friendly. And I walk up. There's no one in except the cleaning guy. I said, hi, I'm from out of town. Can, <laughs> I, I, I promise I won't hurt anything. Can I just walk up to the stage, touch it, look at it? I won't take it away, and then I'll, then I'll leave. And he just went. Yeah, weirdo, go ahead. <laughs> you know, don't lean on anything. And I went up, looked at the stage, and I split. It was fun. Yeah, this crazy Henry Rollins lookalike came in here yeah. and wanted to touch yeah. the stage. I, yeah, it couldn't have been Henry Rollins. He would have been taller. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said everyone, I thought you'd be taller. I'm like, yeah, well. That's I? your takeaway? No. You thought I would be no, taller? <laughs> it's, it, it happens so often, it's almost funny. Every airport, oh, oh my God, I get... I thought you'd be tall. How come you're not eight foot one? Yeah, I'm like, well, yeah, my breasts are usually larger, hair longer, <laughs> eyes bluer. I let them down left and right. Hmm. How do you, um, just because my, and I, I'm going to sound like an ignorant moron, and I apologize, but my perception of what punk is, is a pretty unfiltered um, expression of emotion right from the get-go well, on, on yeah, stage. I would agree. That's part of it. So how do you keep that when, you know, you do your hundred shows a year and every time you get on stage, you have to come from a real authentic place or I feel like your audience is going to know. Oh, they'll call me. Out. So how yeah. do you get there every single time? Is it just sort of just a, a pattern that you've learned or you have to be madly and obsessively in love with your material and your audience? So you're, as actors say, you're in the moment, which I thought was such a load until I started trying to act. And that's how you do the third take and make it believable. You're in that moment. And every night I walk on stage and I, by the three weeks into a tour, I have about six hours of working material, you know, anecdotes, this story leads into that one. Something happened to the newspaper today, made me remind myself at the time I was there, that gets pulled into the set. It's like a big stew. By the end of the tour, it's like, I got a semester's worth of material because I've been, you know, I'm 115 shows into this year. I got another 70 some to go. Jesus and, Christ. And, and, and so, you know, by at this point, I got material like, you know, like you got worry. I got, you know, all day. <laughs> and, and so you just got to go out there and just believe what you're saying. Do it. Talk slowly, because if you go fast, then you'll put the cart before the horse and you'll just start saying words instead of connecting with an audience. And so I just, it's, for me, it's restraint and really remembering why I'm there and believing in my point of view enough to, I really want to get this across to you and constantly coming up with new material or looking at the material I'm working with in a different way and assessing it and accessing it from different points of view. 
And that's how I do it. Do you feel, do you kind of carry around the sort of Bruce Banner thing all the time where you're like, there's rage and it's bubbling and it's just, you know, like I can express it in these moments and it's just figuring out how to channel that stuff? No, it's, I'm an angry person, like a lot of people in this world. I'm pretty angry all the time. It doesn't take much for me. And like a lot of, um, you know, guys getting up there in age, your anger, like you, you find the 60 year old guy, are you, I am mad as hell. And like, well, you were cool when you were 20. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's when I was lightweight. Now I'm really pissed. <laughs> and, and, and I'm kind of like that where the more I see, the more I want to change things. And the more I'm like, you know what, you're that, that those people are getting the short end of the deal. Uh, that's, that makes me mad. And so as I grow older, it becomes less me, 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 and more we, we, we. Yeah. And so that informs my anger and curiosity and allows me to go on stage every night. And I'm, I'm older than most of my audience. There's a few old bastards out there like me, but for the most part, they're younger. So I, I feel I'm more like Uncle Henry. And I, my idea of engaging a crowd, it's servitude. I'm slinging hash and I'm making it the most nutritious stuff I can possibly serve up and it's cooked with love and it's, it's cooked with a great deal of intent and care. It's not just, you know, throwing a handful of this in. It's just like, no, 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 not too much. And I take it out every night and I really want to let this audience know this stuff. Like by 7:45, I cannot wait to go out on stage by noon of that day, I can't figure out how I'm going to get through the show. I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. Why did I say yes to this gig? <laughs> 10 minutes before, I, I wish they'd let me on earlier because I really want to be with those people. I really love my audience. They're great. They're really great to me. And I know some performers, they don't like their audiences that much. Or they don't want to know about them. We have a ritual at my shows. Uh, Henry comes out to his Bon Jovi mobile, my <laughs> Def Leppard Express, and I hang out with all the youth who are there or whoever's there until everyone leaves. So I get these letters. I, I really want to meet you. Like, How do I do that? You hang out by the mobile carbon footprint that's chugging away next to the building, I will come out. You will see that I'm shorter in person, quite approachable. And I'll sign. You'll still you mention want. it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sign, you know, I'll sign your brother-in-law and we'll do the photo. I mean, it's not a problem to meet me. And I make myself completely accessible. I answer the emails. I do the fanzine interviews. Uh, and I stay late after school and I meet every single person by the bus because you have to be in some way at some point responsible for all those things you're hurling, all this invective you're hurling. You have to, I think, follow up. When someone goes, that thing you said, I disagree. Okay, well, um, either tell me why you disagree or we'll just agree to disagree. You know, whatever you want to, however you want to play that, I'll, I'm here, I'm all ears, I'll, I will listen. And I, I try and do that and it's a long day. You know, it's a long night on stage and it's a long, you know, sometimes it's up to 90 minutes post-show with all these people. By the time I get on the bus, I'm, I'm trembling from exhaustion. Are you, uh, how, how much, how digital of a life do you lead? How, are you social media? Is, is your life I don't do media? Facebook, um, but I tweet. Basically, you know, here's the tour, here's the radio notes, you know, here's the next, dis you know, just functional stuff. Because that would take up all your time, like just interacting with people that way. And then you wouldn't well, have to. You know, I have three different websites, one for the radio show, one for just mail I need to answer, and one for my book company. And that's where a lot of people write me at. And so it's like a weed. I clip it down. And an hour later, there's four more that have come in. Sure. So I always have that 
site open. And when I get a moment, I'll answer a couple of letters, go back to work, answer a couple of letters before you go to bed, answer six, wake up in the morning, you know, open your eyes, drag the laptop back into bed with you, answer some letters. It's, it's a constant kind of keeping the thing below. I try and keep it below 50 incoming. Yeah. There was a guy, I, I read a quote once, uh, and just, you know, hearing about Neil Young and talking about Carlin and Lenny Bruce and Joan and uh, and, and, and Patton who, uh, you know, just like, it's, it's so interesting to see there are consistencies with these people that they're completely driven nonstop. And I'm always reminded of this quote that I heard where this guy, uh, said, some teacher said to him one time, you know, what are you, what are, what are you prepared to do after you do all that you were expected to do? When I was like, Oh my God, that totally. Yeah. Like so many people, complain about, well, I don't have this and I'm not getting this and I want this. And you're like, yeah, well, do you just, when they tell you you're done, do you just go, okay, I'm done? Or do you fucking keep at it? No. You know, Phelps, the the swimmer. Phelps. Yeah. Yeah. His last race in the Olympics. That was gonna be his last one. He won. You know how much he won by? No. Like a, like two tenths of a second. I mean, that's like, you can't even blink in that time. I mean, the first three people all were within like half a second of like your your finger hitting that wall and that's your time. That's that, are you gonna do, are you gonna go past what's expected of you? That's how you win, because it's by two tenths of a second. That's how you win. Like, where's the, oh, he's in the pool. But isn't it dinner time? Yeah, he, he eats his meal three hours from now. What's he gonna be doing, swimming? What's he gonna be doing at four in the morning, swimming? It's how you're gonna win, because it's two tenths of a second. I'm so, I'm so torn on the idea of it though, because part of me feels like, yeah, that's great. That that's what you're supposed to do. Like that's what we're supposed to do in this life. The that is the gift of that we you know like that is what we must do to pursue in life. And the other part of me thinks like, am, am I just compulsive? Well, maybe it's maybe it's because I'm broken. You know, no, like. No, but it's all of that. It, it's it's what where your moral compass takes you because you're you're just a respirating bag of water. Sure. Yeah, you don't have to do anything. And in America, you can be technically illiterate, functionally illiterate, and still somehow keep eating chili. They keep letting you stick your snout into the trough every day. It's kind of hard to starve to death in America. You're gonna keep you, no time to read books. Got to eat chili. Well, you just can't. You can be a real lummox and get by. I mean, this country is really amazing. Like that. You can, you know, be a real failure and, you know, be overweight. You know, you can keep eating. Where in other countries, man, you got to figure it out or you're dead. And so it just depends on how much you want to do and what drives some people. You know, what drives that guy? He's mad at dad. Oh, okay. Truly. Or he's mad at mom. Or he always wanted to do better than his brother. Is that why he... He started Geffen Records. Yeah, he's mad at that guy in 10th grade. I mean, there's all kinds of motivations. But what drives a guy like Kofi Annan? What drives a guy, you know, uh, like Bill Clinton, uh, whose post, his post-president life is like crazy busy? Who knows? Ego, desire to be liked? I don't know. But he's always out doing something somewhere. Jimmy Carter, who's, you know, was born four days after Abraham Lincoln. He's still out doing stuff. He actually shows up at his own Jimmy Carter library all the time. He preaches on Sunday. I mean, the guy, he's really old and he's really busy. George W. Bush's dad going on tour with Bill Clinton, tsunami relief. Guy's in his 80s out there doing stuff. I mean, there's all, there's all kinds of motivations. I got all kinds of 
unenviable motivations. So, you know, some is I come from minimum wage work. I like to work. Other work, I and and I'll say this because I'm honest, but it's not it's not enviable. Um, my my bandmates in Black Flag, anyone I was ever in a band with, do I live to bury them? <laughs> Absolutely. Eclipse <laughs> 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 them and, and, and just Ray Graffin mainly. I, right? I, would, I would say that if they're all in the room, and I mean no malice. I mean I don't want them to to be hurt in any way. But if if one of them is getting up at five, I'm not going to sleep. Yeah, I'm just gonna. I'll already would have had their breakfast by the time they get up. A lot of that motivates me. Like when Black Flag broke up, I said, "Okay, let's let's see who hits the ground running, and let's see who stays on the track." Like, let's go. You know, within sixty days of that, I was doing my first solo album. Within a few months of the band breaking up, I had my new band, and a lot of that was like, "Oh, and I'm not getting forggotten." I'm not becoming irrelevant. I'm like I'm gone. That's I'm, that's I'm the good the that's the good competitiveness. That's the competitiveness that, you know, that brought Homo sapiens to the top of the you know, like but, that's we have to. But it's not like I'm putting sugar in their gas tank, nor am I talking down uh, these are people I like, but I want to bury them. <laughs> any band I have to open for, I I don't like headlining as much as I like being the middle slot. I think possibly my favorite story you have is about opening for Iggy Pop. Yeah, which is great because you're never going to kick his ass. <laughs> I saw I was with Iggy a few uh, several days ago in Poland. I saw him play in Katowice. 30,000 people just digging Iggy. He's so great. What <laughs> was the story of when you opened for well, Iggy Pop? Well, yeah, he's my hero. He is the heavyweight champion of rock and roll. I, I, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a, a kind of a friend. I, I see him like every great once in a while. I'll be seeing him in November when he, he buries Morrissey at Staples Center. <laughs> uh, Iggy Pop Bumbaye, Morrissey. Anyway, and I have no, no problems with Morrissey, but it's going to be a slaughter. I can't. It's going to be like, just like baby seal brains everywhere. Anyway, um, I, I, I've had the chance to play with him a few times. So I said, okay, I'm going to outdo Iggy. I'm going to play harder than Iggy. And one time I did this in Finland and I trained for that show hard for like weeks. And we play, you know, I open for him, obviously. And we're on, you know, I'm on this outdoor stage. And I, you know, I see Iggy before the show. Like, hey, Iggy, hey, man, how are you? He's always nice to me. Total Boy Scout. He's like very, very polite. Introduces himself to your friend. I mean, he's like, hey, uh, I'm Iggy. You're like, yeah, you are. And he's, he's really cool. Anyway, I go out there and play. And by the second song, I said, I'm dying. <laughs> and I got through the set. He went out there. And we're both bands. There is a festival, so the the Cure is headlining that night, and the the stage is set for the Cure. Potted plants, flowers, their keyboard thing elevated. It's a beautiful stage, and I was very careful not to step on anything because it's not my show. I'm not there to mess up the Cure. Yeah. Iggy goes out there and immediately starts demolishing the Cure stage, <laughs> punting the, the footlights, <laughs> punting them into the audience like boom. <laughs> potted plants smashed on the ground and it brings the audience up on the stage to oh, sing Jesus. Lust for Life half a fjord of kids comes up <laughs> he's breaking potted plants they, oh well if teacher's doing it then I can do it so all of a sudden uh. there's potted plants and flowers getting decimated the, the Cures Road crew are laughing they think it's hilarious because who doesn't like Iggy Pop destroying their back line and so now Iggy, he has the kids are off stage. He's now singing. He's all over the ground, rolling through the peat moss. 
He's now covered in blood. He's now managed to, he's bleeding charismatically, like a string from the lip. He's bleeding magnificently from one peck. And, like, and he, he's completely ripped. You know, he's like Bruce Lee with blonde hair. He's like completely without body fat. And he's covered in sweat, mud, and blood. He looks like a god. And so at the end of the show, he takes the guitar player's guitar, band leaves stages, howling with feedback, and he just lets the guitar, he swings the guitar, it makes all this amazing feedback, and he takes the microphone, and he looks at a field of people, and just goes, <laughs> and screams at them for two minutes. It was the most mesmerizing thing I've ever seen. Then he takes the guitar and throws it straight over his head, and stands there like, he's either going to hit me, or it won't. And you're like, oh, 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 and it lands like right next to him. And had it hit him, it would have ripped his head open. And then he walks off stage. Place is going nuts. They've seen God. It's Iggy Pop. He walks off stage right. I'm, of course, standing right there. He walks by me, looks at me, kind of stops and goes, <laughs> And walks away. <laughs> like basically like And then the cure has to come out and sing just like heaven. <laughs> but he, he basically said, son, you're never. And the only that he did give me an inch. He said, Okay, I don't think I could play that hard tomorrow night. <laughs> so oh. Good try. Fuck. Was it a reaction off of like you trying to fucking push oh, it? Oh yeah. It was a completely Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um it was just, and, and last year, it was they, they, they did the big tribute to the departed guitar player, Ron Ashton, the Stooges guitar player, and his Ron's sister, Kathy, called me. She said, so um, we want you to, to speak. We want you to do the memorial speech about Ron Ashton. I'm like, wow, don't feel too much pressure. You know, he's only one of my favorite guitar players in the world. So I said, oh, yeah. And she said, and Iggy wants you to sing a Stooges song on stage with him. And I said, okay, so I guess I better call his management. So I talked to his manager, Henry. And so I said, so Henry, what are we doing? He said, well, um, Iggy wants to play up that rivalry thing, that funny story you talk about. So we want to do it as a press release. as like Henry versus Iggy. And, and I said, um, he said, would that be okay with you? I said, yeah, you can release that. He says, good, because we did it yesterday. <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. And um, so he said, Iggy wants you to pick a song and go, go on stage and, and sing with the Stooges. And I said, that's, wow. He goes, yeah, pick the song. So I picked a song called I Gotta Write, which is uh, really fun and fast. And uh, I sang it on stage with the Stooges and then literally ran off stage because they started the song Raw Power, which means it's time for the real guy to come on stage. And it was, I made the speech which was terrifying because I, I just I didn't want to use paper. So I memorized this whole thing and did it. And uh, I asked uh, Kathy, I said, how did I do? And she replied by hugging me and bursting into tears. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought I did OK. But it was, uh, you know, uh, one of those great nights of my life to be part of it, to be able to speak on behalf of the Ashton family and to be on stage with uh, James Williamson on guitar was uh, I can now wander into traffic and get run over because that happened. Well, it's nice. It's nice to hear also that, you know, that you, you know, it's, as long as you've been doing this, you still have moments in your life where you go, I can't fucking believe this is my life. Oh, I if I ever lose that, you, sh you, you should just bury me. I mean, when I stop being a fan, forget it. I'm done. 
Um, I got a great letter today from a guy you don't know named Daniel Mapp. He managed, he road manages uh, Dinosaur Jr., one of my extra super favorite bands in the world. Yeah. One of my favoriteest places in the world is to sit behind Jay Mascus's six, <laughs> six <laughs> by 12 cabinets and just get stupefied by that amazing guitar. They're playing Sunday here Sunday. in town at, at, the, YFS. At, 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 the, at the YFS. So I wrote Daniel and I said, can I come to the show with you guys and get my normal spot? I saw them 15 times last year. So yes, I'm a fan. And in, uh, a, a week from this Saturday, I'm premiering their new album on my show. And I'm very honored to do it. It's a great album. And he wrote back, he said, yes, sir, you have access. And so I'll be going to the festival site with them. And he and I are going to do, you know, we'll work out the details. And um, that's my other favorite place is uh, Stage Left, Stooges, where I, I, I sing along with every song and... Uh, more than once, I start crying. I'm so moved by watching that band. I just get all... <gasps> but, um, when I stop, you know, geeking out on bands and buying records, I buy literally minimal one record a day. That's my rule. I have to buy at least one record a day. Usually it's more like three. But it has to be one. There always has to be records coming into our mailbox. Because, you know, my assistant hates carrying the vinyl in. But I said, I have a radio show. and <laughs> you're, You've got problems. <laughs> but when I stop being a fan, like, what fun is it if you can't go to a show and go, oh, they're, they're on stage? I mean, come on. That's, that, that really makes it worth living. That makes sense to me. And because I, I, you know, I often think about, I mean, I think about it from the comedy angle of like, you know, why do so many great stand ups that I love that were just like tornadoes of comedy when they were younger? And they start to get older and they just kind of lose it and they lose a little bit of their edge and then it's not the same. And I'm sure there's I'm oversimplifying, but I think one factor might be that maybe they lose their fandom. And it's just sort of like that's 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 such a driving force mm. for why you want to explore and why you want to try to uh, take the take the medium and expand it and, and experiment and do your own stuff because you love the just the concept of what you what you get to do. Yeah. And um, every once in a while, the interviewer. I guess in a way of trying to, you know, camaraderie. So music sucks now, right? I go, what do you mean? Well, no, American no. Idol, man, music sucks. I'm like, well, then just don't watch American Idol. I mean, I have nothing against these performers, but as, if does music suck? Are you kidding? I can't keep up with all the new records coming out that, yeah. that, that I buy and enjoy. What do you like right now that maybe people don't know about that they... Uh, I, 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 it's music that I like, but I can't recommend. Okay. It, well, no, 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 no. I'll do it. Sure. I'm just saying, I don't know if you'd like it. Oh, sure. Not because you don't have good well, taste Well, that's okay. Music, I just was curious to know what you like. My taste is kind of out there. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of weird Finnish psychedelic and psych folk music Ooh. that usually comes out on CDRs with a hand-folded color Xerox sleeve <laughs> inside a sandwich bag. And I buy a lot of, like, super homemade music. There's a label in the Midwest called American Tapes. The famous band on that label is called Wolf Eyes. Yeah, John yeah. Olson runs the label. He has over 1,000 releases. I have over 800 of them. And some of them are limited edition one, limited edition five. Uh, he also does paintings, crazy collage art. I have 30, 40 plus paintings of his. I bought two of them from him last week, and they're all over my office. Um, I'll, there's so many good bands. There's a band I got into earlier this year called Utan. It's a guy from Finland. He makes crazy music. Uh, Utan has over 60 releases. I have most of them. I love them. My cat is an alien. Two, two brothers 
from uh, from Italy, Mauricio and the Roberto. They make like a record a week. Crazy, psyched out, trippy, cosmic synth drum noise. Sometimes there's a Is horn it in there. sort of the same as like Jandek, where it's that sort of... Yeah, you ho- put super it, homemade. Yeah. yeah, yeah, same ethic. I have a lot of those records, too. I gotta ask you, though, um, I have a hard time keeping up with American music coming out, or, you know, British, or... Uh, it's I, I always... When you when I listen to your radio show, you seem to find scenes within these different countries. Mm. What kind of because I try like I I always (laughs) think about well it's like one time I came across I think it was in two thousand two Cambodian rocks that compilation of all the garage like bands. There's four of them. Well, actually, there's five. <laughs> there's one that's basically a CDR. It's very hard to find. It cost me like 20 bucks on eBay, but I got it. There's the four that you can find at Amoeba right now. Yeah. Then there's another one that has some of the songs on the other four, but some that aren't. And that's a that's a great one as well. Yeah, I, because I was working at uh, Benway Records in Venice Beach when uh, like they, that came in and we put it on and we were all obsessed with it. And I was like, and that, that was one of the first times, this must have been like in 2001, where I was like, like um, you know, rock and roll's been around for a long time, and so the progression must happen uh, throughout the world sure. of just like the bands progressing and going past this, and so much musical history that yeah. like you can research, like you can spend a lifetime in each you know like province of a country. Sure. Each genre of music is like Egyptology. You can pick a dynasty. And that'll be your life's work. Like there's that one guy, he's documenting the life of Lyndon Baines Johnson. It's like the guy, he's going to die writing a Lyndon Baines Johnson history book. I mean, he's just, he's that guy. With music, the only problem is you won't have enough time to get to, you won't, say if it's an ocean, you're not even going to get a toe wet. You might kind of get near it. You might get some foam on your shirt (laughs) because there's that much good music. And when you start micro-dividing, I was in Sri Lanka a couple of years ago, and I was in the center of the country in the mountains in a place called Kandy, Kandy with a K. And I'm staying with a family. I got hooked up by this guy in uh, Saudi Arabia, hooked me up with a guy to stay with a family and live the life. I meet the son. He speaks some English. He knows my music. We hanging out, talking about music. I said, so how do you get your music? Any record stores in town? He goes, well, no. I said, so how do you get your music? He said, well, we borrow. I go, you steal music. He's like, well, dude, I'm in the mountains of Sri Lanka. Give me a break. I said, no problem. (laughs) So I said, do you have a a, a scene? Is there a music scene in the mountainous region of Sri Lanka? And he looks at me like I'm stupid. He's like, yeah. (laughs) I said, well, okay, sorry. Sorry, youth man. Well, what would that music be? He goes, death metal. Mm-hmm. Like, looking at me like, you're not down with the Sri Lankan The death universal metal. language. <laughs> it's, it's the mountains. It has to be death metal. <laughs> yeah. And I said, do you have any Sri Lankan death metal I can oh. listen to? And he, I downloaded from his hard drive about two or three gigabytes of oh, Sri Lankan awesome. Jesus death Christ. Death metal. And that's just like one, it's just a needlehead. And if that. Right. And it sounds like death metal. God damn it. Um, yeah. Jello has that great quote about Sri Lanka. that. The death metal, you could go anywhere in the world and there is a death metal band yep. playing somewhere in that town. You should see Jello's record collection. Oh, I, I can't imagine. It's terrifying because <laughs> he's got one of everything in like post-punk punk rock because he's Jello Biafra. Every band wants to give him one and he kept it all. I mean, I, I've, I've been to a record store with him and he just brings a stack of 45s to the counter and just has the guy behind the counter DJ. He's like, can play me a minute of that one? Can you put, put that on that stack? No, you can put that one over there because I'm going to buy that stack and not buy that stack. I've actually done that at stores. I did that yeah. in Helsinki, Finland this year. Went to the weird bin. I go, these records look interesting. Funk. I go, can you play these? And the guy wants to sell some records to me. He's like, yeah. yeah. So he plays like a minute of each. I bought them all. And um, that's what got me into this crazy Finnish stuff I've been obsessed with all this year. I sh- I've just realized uh, in this podcast that like most human beings, I, when people go, 
oh, are you, you know, are you, are you, are you a fan of music? Like, of course I am. I, I, I know music. I like music. And then just listen to you guys talking. Like, I don't know anything about music. <laughs> no, 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 you're, of course you're a fan of music. <laughs> Everyone's a fan of it's like it's like when people say, oh, do you like comedy? Sure, I'm a fan yeah. of comedy. You know, and then they say the most broad, and you're like, no, I know, but there's so many other things you could be enjoying. But it, it just depends on how deep you want to drill down on it. I mean, like my assistant. Most of the records I play, she just goes, oh, would you just, <laughs> would you please turn this off? I mean, it's offensive. And I said, what? You like Rolling Stones, Humble Pie, Ross? And she's like, she likes like five bands. They're all really good. Yeah. <laughs> Hates the Beatles. Wow. Loves really? the Rolling Stones. Loves Keith yeah. Richards and Mick Jagger. Yeah. And, and as do I. But she insists I don't like them enough. <laughs> and then I'll put on one of my weird avant noise records. And she's like, like, would you, are you kidding like grow up. I'm like, are you kidding? This is awesome. What do you uh, hear? Like, what are you hearing? Like, if you hear like a like a if you're listening to like a weird Finnish noise collage, where, how does your brain zero? Like, what are you zeroing in on? It lets my brain go. I mean, you, you, it frees you up. It's like when you hear Sun Ra, when you hear <laughs> Albert Eiler, it lets your it unlocks your brain, and it confounds you sometimes. Like, well, what's that sound? And all of a sudden, you you break through a barrier. Because music is supposed to be this. That's like how some people are. Well, it's got to be not really, not in India. I mean, it's a different scale. And so try snapping your fingers to some guy doing some raga with his instrument. You're like, I, where's the one? Yeah, where's the one? <laughs> there is no one. It's a yeah. floating one. I, and like, then how's that guy able to play with him? They got a thing going on. <laughs> Stick around. It gets more interesting. One of the, oh, the, you know, in the third hours when this kind of music <laughs> Jesus out, Christ. And you realize that you're going to be nothing but a music student. And if you can keep your ears open then almost any music festival is just solid gold and you just want to hear music night and day. I become a music kook. I've tried uh, for many years to get into noise. Um, I was really into uh, a band called Man is the Bastard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and then there was Bastard Noise. And then I was on tour in 2000 and our, our band was going to get to open up for Bastard Noise and Men's Recovery Project. And like we're just like, this is going to be the fucking best. We're going to get to see Bastard Noise live. Men's Recovery Project this is going to be amazing. And I'm watching Bastard Noise and it's a guy behind a computer and then a guy like just like turning knobs yeah. off to the side. And <laughs> I was like, the gig. and I'm waiting for it. And I'm and after, and then like, a, like it's like, and they went on, they headlined after Men's Recovery Project, which is such a fun, weird, interesting show to watch. Sam McFeeters, just this guy, just this nut job, just like showing, you know, doing speeches and having weird, awesome songs. And then just to watch this guy with the glow of a computer. Yeah, two stoners with their hair in their face, yeah. not acknowledging the audience, twiddling knobs and dicking around with a, a laptop. That's. Yeah. What some of these gigs look my, like. My uh, girlfriend and I bonded over the band Lightning Bolt. Oh, oh great. Right. But that's, and, that's not and well, But, but the, one of the highlights for me has been working at the theater on Sundays the, that Chris owns. I One of the guys runs the open mic. And I will clear people out with Lightning Bolt because it gets me excited. And the show before they clear out. But what's great is we'll have young kids who are coming in to try comedy. And about once a week, I'll have a lot of people real pissed as this noise is playing. And then some kid will come and go, what is that? Yeah, and he's there like sixteen, and you've you've bit him with the yep. poison was, that is noise music. I was in the lightning bolt when someone's like, it's like, yeah, it's a two piece band, it's really like crazy and noisy, and then the drummer sings, but he tapes the microphone to his face. I says, I'm getting, I'm buying that record now. I'd even listen to. It. I was like, yep. I'm gonna go buy that record for me. That's all I would need as a description. <laughs> and that alone, I'll at least buy one record. I'll say, okay, well, th- tell me one record to walk out of the store with of that band. Oh, you want this one? I'll go get it. Yeah. <laughs> I am now curious. 
And if it sucks, well then, okay, you know, I'm in for 14 bucks. I'll, I'll be all right. And if I'm digging it, oh, now yeah. we got a new band to dig. I mean, I to me, that's uh, I feel lucky. Yeah, yeah. That's always nice when you hear band, and it's like I don't feel like bummed when like I hear a band. I'm like. Man, this is so good. How come I haven't heard this before? They have all these other records. I just, I'm yeah. like, oh, fucking A, let's do this. And yeah, you just, oh, yeah, go. just going, going down right that tunnel. Back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's a thing that I think punk uh, is something I've always appreciated when I got into it. Is it like uh, if it hits you in this way where you get into it and it's very historical? It's like the kind of same way people like baseball, where they're like, oh, it's like baseball. There's this, this guy, but then this team and this club, and yeah. goes all the way back. Punk is a very similar thing for me, where it's like, oh, this and this is influencing this, and go, and you can keep on going all the you way. You get back. into yeah. open mouth breathing mode where you're trying to explain to something a band you like, but you have to explain to them a timeline because you're yeah, trying to explain exactly. them how you got and there. And this scene, and it was like it was the Midwest, and it was. <laughs> yeah, and, and then if you talk long enough, all of a sudden you're talking about Stockhausen. I mean, all this stuff, <laughs> because eventually you're going to get back to you know punk rock, the low album, Bowie, Eno, yep. Berlin. Krautrock, and all, you're, yeah, you, you, yeah. as you go back, as Simon uh, did in his book, where you're like, oh, well, then I guess it goes back to Noy, Ralph and Florian, yeah. and then you watch the three-hour documentary uh, on, on Kraftwerk. That's, I uh, want to see it so bad. It is so good. I mean, and you'll, it'll make you want to get all those records, because yeah, all those they're, stories, yeah. all their stories are amazing. Because the, in the interviews, they're saying, they're like, we're coming from World War II, like we're trying to like we're making soundtracks of bombs dropping yeah. uh, of like buildings falling because we're reliving this horror of our parents. You're like, OK, I never uh, that's that's I th deep. I think the telltale sign is that as Krautrock in general is doing that, that you watch all of the cool American rock stars just beeline for Berlin as that stuff starts floating out. <laughs> too. That they're just like, oh, that's where things are happening now. Time to go. Yeah, Berlin was really fun when the wall was up. It, it uh, when the wall came down, which I'm glad it did, of course. It just became another beautiful German city. I uh, used to go there a lot, as you know, a band can do okay there. Black Flag played there a couple of times, and I'd always spend the afternoon walking along the wall. It wasn't hard to find. You're never more than a few blocks from it. You know, where's the wall? Go that way, and there it is. And now you go there and you can just walk through Checkpoint Charlie. It's just a street now. It's hmm. very different. When the, when the wall came down, it's, it's like the pressure of that city kind of was unleashed and it just became more, I don't know. Then you see Eastern Germans were still making a transition, I think, all these years later. But uh, it's it was fascinating to be there when the wall was up. There was something very cool and tense about it. Well, this has been, I mean, we're we're at the end of our hour but this uh, is i've been a fucking amazing i just i feel i don't know i mean i certainly wouldn't come in and pretend like oh i know everything about but i really i i always love finding out like oh i really don't know that much about anything and and it's been really fascinating just to get this perspective on i mean even watching you jonah open up about music or you kyle just mm. like it's so i love watching people talk about shit they know about and they <laughs> well, get compassionate you know about. it's like uh, for me i've always as much as i've ever been in anything there's always another guy that knows way more like that's how I like. It's like sometimes Kyle will start talking about stuff, and I'll be like, "No, that's, that's why I, I don't like know why I don't know." You that. in general, though, is that I get into better music fights with you than just about, <laughs> and it's why I like occasionally will be standing and I'll try to get the ball rolling when you don't want to talk. And I'm like, but "Come on, you're the only guy who yeah, can yeah. run with it. <laughs> please." Because <laughs> you like Led Zeppelin, and I don't respect that. <laughs> I back and forth relationship there. Really? <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of my favorite things to say. Wow. Yeah, it's just that there's if there's one there's two bands you could you can name saying you don't like that will really go like it will hit the root of somebody. Like oh you just did me. Yeah. <laughs> Led Zeppelin is like uh like it's like you say it's like fuck Led Zeppelin but 
But no, I you feel can't. bad for you. I, <laughs> no, I wanna, no, I want to take you in. See, we've had the same fight because I don't like the Beatles, and Jonah will get great condescending. She's like, everybody likes the Beatles, man. Well, no, they're because they're, well, they're great. Boy, my the engineer of my radio show, who's a damn encyclopedia on music. You say Beatles, he's like, eh, not so much. Yeah, I'm like, they're really? not bad, but yeah, there's so much are, cool music to yeah, stop well, he's at like, yeah, Beatletown. Cool. I'm like. Wow, because from me, a production like, standpoint, know, they're great. Yeah, for yeah. me, it's just you know music that I I still like to listen yeah. to. Yeah. Another band like that that was Radiohead. If you say you don't like Radiohead, it will really be like, you don't know. Then you don't know yet. Yeah, no, um, I, I admire Tom York. I admire those records. I like those guys because they take chances. They, not all of their records are accessible, even to some Radiohead fans, which means they're they're going they're for pushing. something. You know, well, they're going for their what they want to do rather than trying to make you happy. And I, I, I much rather have a band take a turn a corner where I'm like, okay, I got to hang on, but you know, with my nails to stay with you rather than you giving me that kind of then jumping into my lap and licking my face. But it wanders into well, that sort of proggy territory where you appreciate what they're doing, but you're sort of like, come on though. Let's that's why, and that's okay. That's why I can think of no better way to end this podcast. <laughs> We're all just blankly looking at Chris for the audience listening at home. Come on. So, scritty polity, you yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> we all know that it's not what the look is. Yeah. Come on, just groove on it. Yeah. No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys, I know what Chris, uh, America, I know what Chris looks like in high school now. <laughs> You're Cuba. <laughs> Wait, guys, the best part's coming up. Yeah, oh no, not yet. Oh, when I listen to this, all I think is, man, I'm sometimes too harsh on the human league. <laughs> Work really hard. <laughs> They're real good guys. A friend of mine has road managed them, and, and I said, "What's that like?" He said, "They're wonderful people. They go out there and they just like they, they really, you know, they want to give the audience a great show." Every I have a perfect way to make a transition. No, yeah, I'm so glad this that air is over. Yeah. And it all yeah. comes rushing back. Reagan. <laughs> there was so much good stuff going on. That's when anybody's like, 80s is the worst. I'm like, no, that's when yeah. so much things oh, happening. So much stuff. People, yeah, people say the same thing. Like, they're like, the 90s music, like, in the late 90s, it sucked. Or it's just like, you're just never looking. Super chunk records at them and hit them. Yeah. Yeah, every decade has, oh, yeah. has yeah. good stuff. The 80s, for me, that's the Pixies. That's, Hell yeah. That's, you know, Dinosaur Jr., Sonic Youth. Your band. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. it was rich. You know, there's all kinds of good bands. The '90s, what Tool sucks? Come on, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of yeah. There's all kinds of good stuff. I think happening. it's cool that like '90s, sort of that weird post '80s guitar, fuzzy, warm pop thing has kind of come back into vogue. Well, I, yeah. I think the guitars being rediscovered is like, oh, it's, it's, this is an instrument that you can. I think that's. I think you're seeing like a vinyl is coming back. Yeah. Yeah. Turntables are like they're making a ton of them now, and I think people appreciate analog sounds. Musicians are like, wow, I can buy that pedal on eBay. Oh, that sounds cool. How did Robin Trower get that sound? Two years ago, you would have said Robin Trower to that guy. You would have said who? Yeah. And so that's cool. That, that <laughs> I know a guy are... in a Robin Trower tribute band. <laughs> they're called Robin Trier. Uh, they're called Bridge of Size. Mm. They won an L.A. Music Award for Best Tribute Act. Cool. Oh, not Atomic <laughs> Punks? Uh, or Led Zepp again? So can I ask you my one like fanatic Rollins question. Um, the 
way I got into you was like, I'm a big fan of the spoken word. Mm. Like that actually probably influenced me getting into comedy more than any comic. Like uh, all through high school, that was just a lot of oh, what wow, I listened thanks. to. At, but the first thing I ever saw you do spoken word on is this weird black hole thing that I've been chasing since I was 14. And I've never found reference of it existing anywhere besides the one time I saw it. And it was on at 1 a.m. on Comedy Central. Okay. Uh, in this would have been about 2000. Yeah. And it was clearly from like the early 90s. It was, it was shot. It was you yeah. in a black box theater. It was clearly shot on videotape. And the two stories I caught from it were you're at a live sex show somewhere in Asia with your band, uh -huh. and a girl shoots a banana out of her vagina and catches it. Yeah. <laughs> and then you oh, tell the first kiss story. Yes. Um, uh, I almost hit him in the face. Like, whoa! Yes. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And I've never been able to find that. That is on a DVD, I think, called uh, Rollins Goes to London. That was I, for it's, BBC Four. Okay, it's not on the version I have of Rollins Goes, because that's the one that, that's Rollins Goes to London and a second show, yeah, okay. The Split. It's not that because I bought it thinking it was going to be that. Yeah, that was at a, that little club. Uh, the BBC said, hey, we want to shoot you for BBC Four. I said, great, we'll show it, and then we'll let you can you know, buy yeah. it. And I said, okay, my manager worked it out. And I think that's, and I told that story about that uh, guy at the, at the snake show. Yes. Uh, where he, he's got the boombox playing the, 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 uh, the, yeah. the theme. Ba -da 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 -da, and, then, da -da. and then you close on doing the story about the kissing the girl, the stairway to heaven is yeah, the other piece the, on it. Yeah. Diane, what was her last name? <laughs> she was hot. <laughs> but I've been, I've been chasing that goddamn video down. Yeah, I think that's either, that's either still on videotape or it's, I've done a lot of talking DVDs and I never watched them past the editing phase. Yeah. Editing and mastering, once it's done, I'm eight X's down the highway. Well, Kyle, listen, people are going to hear this. But we, oh, are we still recording? Yeah. Oh, fuck, I didn't realize. No, 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 no. I thought, I thought, I thought so it's so No, it's fine, it's totally fine. So, uh, what's your, your, your Twitter is, is your Twitter Kyle it's, is awesome? It's at Kyle Clark is rad. Kyle Clark is rad. So yeah. if anyone knows, if anyone has this, uh, the, the, what Kyle's talking about, this, this Rollins performance they saw on Comedy Central, they, they just tweet at him. Someone's yeah. got to have it. That would be 97 or 98 in that that incident happened in 97. Gotcha. Uh, we were on our way to Australia or Japan and had a few days off. And so we went to Bangkok and um, I had already been there. I went there on my own for a few days on my way to Australia once. And the band said, hey, let's go to Bangkok. And when you go to Bangkok in that mode, hey, let's go see the sex show, which is super boring <laughs> and kind of depressing. Like, wow, live sex on stage. You see two bored people, seven minutes a night, set, three sets a night. Like, these two people are like, <laughs> I can get an erection on command, and I can sit here, and I'm smoking a cigarette with it. Here comes the ping pong ball. One bounce into the glass, two bounces into the glass. Please tip generously. It's like sad. You're like, really? Is this what Westerners want to see? And my, and my road crew said, come on, let's go. And... By 20 minutes in, it's like an hour or whatever. By 20 minutes in, everyone in the audience is like, oh, okay, this is, it's, we got it. But there's, there's more? Really? And it's not one of those things you really want to be seen at. So, of course, we're sitting, there's like these bleachers around the, the staging area. So I look across, and there's people, one after another, people pounding each other on their shoulder uh -huh. with their finger, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like, uh, and, 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 and you know, we're on holidays, click, and there's like me, like, 
Hey! <laughs> with a woman. Just taking no. in the local flavor. Taking yeah. in the local flavor is a ping pong ball. The ping pong flavor. Yeah, Look at that. <laughs> I heard they start real young to learn how to do that. Anyway, yeah. I'm going to go to a... Yeah. <laughs> Sex and, crimes, and, I got to go. And so I'm like... <laughs> There I am, and I so far I've never seen that on on you know on someone's Facebook page, but I was there, and that happened. But um, well, thank you guys, thank you for being, thank you for being here, Henry. It was no a pleasure, problem. man, a real I, pleasure. I, I, I apologize if I talk too much. No, oh, no, 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 please. That's okay. why you're here. Okay. Yeah, this is this is this is all about you, and I I I actually learned a shit ton today, and I'm actually going to go back and listen to this podcast, or make Kyle do it and write down all of the bands that you mentioned. Well, you know. He would be a good reference in that, you know, it's obviously both these guys got their antennas up. And, and the truth is, no matter what kind of music you're into, there's probably about five or six bands you'd really like that you, had never, you haven't heard yet. Oh, I know. I'm sure. And, um, in every genre. I mean, I listen to a lot of metal music, a lot of stoner metal. You know, I just yeah. love the, the length of it because it's so extreme, it becomes almost avant. Yeah. Like bands but, like Sleep. Dude, that re-release. Oh, yeah. Holy shit. Nice, right? Yeah. Have you yeah. seen them live? No. My feelings hurt at the end of their set. They're so loud. And I saw them outside. This is what you saw sleep. I, yeah. I said so they played. They, they played. Getting two, back together like every summer. They, they played yeah. the FYFS two years ago. Right. And holy shit. Might be one of the greatest did, did performances I've ever seen. Yeah. In its entirety. Just. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. It's a 67 minute song. Jesus and they, Christ. they are soul crushingly loud live. Yeah. And, and it's such a. An amazing piece of music. I mean, it's like one of my favorite. It's incredible. Single works. I mean, you put it on, you're like, that is a- amazing. And I've played it in its entirety many times. Southern Lord just reissued it on picture disc, black and green vinyl. I nice. know this because I have the picture disc and the green. The redo of the cover is really cool the too. Redo of the, co- the whole the hologram version is also very nice. Oh, I haven't seen that. Um, the new High on Fire record. Fuck, that's so, yes. There's not one bad record of theirs. They've never... No, they're so good. They're oh, my God. Good. And um, they just... Re, uh, Southern Lord just reissued the first album with extra tracks on CD only right for now. And I just ordered my copy. I got it yesterday, and I, I popped on that first track, Baghdad, which is one of my favorite tracks, and it's... The remastering is good. The, the guys at Southern Lord are very damn careful when they remaster. Oh, yeah. Like Dope Smoker. I, I have the TP vinyl version I bought a long time ago. I bought it when it came out. But I bought the reissue because they said in the – I went to the site, and it said painfully remastered from the analog tape. And I just remastered something for vinyl release myself, and it's touchy going over old tape. you got to be real careful. Discord's great with their remasters. Like yeah. That, that, yeah, the Maya Threat tapes. Oh, and the, 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 the yeah. Nation the, Ulysses. Fugazi, the Nation stuff is that sick. Oh, the phenomenal. Nation, the, the Nation yeah. redos are, are oh, untouchable. Yeah. Holy Christ. Yeah. So fucking good. They, 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 Ian is real. Well, first off, Ian gets it right, but the Fugazi guys, like Guy, yes. will be at the mastering on... Like he is just so intense. They, well, because they've got almost that same level of fandom, like the Grateful Dead people. Oh, no, like, no. Have, do you ever see the Grateful Dead movie where they, when they remixed it, uh, the guy who did it was just a fan who brought brought in, bought all of the amps they toured with, and remiked them each individual track, playing through the amp wow. to get a more authenticated version Jeez. of it. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, Ian takes a great deal of care with the mastering, and uh, they master for digital up in New York. They use a guy in Chicago. They're using a guy locally for some of the, the stuff. The Silver Lake guy. Silver Sonia. Yeah. And then that, apparently, Chad Clark, apparently that relationship, it, it no longer, they don't do it anymore. A lot, they're using a guy in Chicago. That's been all the new Fugazi vinyl. 
uh, and then they're using another guy. I was at the mastering session last year for the Void record. Oh, yeah. He goes, hey, I'm mastering it. I was like, oh, I'm coming. And I heard the the Void record get mastered. And so Ian is very, very careful. Otherwise, not going to redo it. Ian's real careful. I run it stuff. Ian walks up. You know, I'll go, I'll do it. He's like, well, give me the brochure, and I'll get back to you in a week. They were real real quiet. Post Q Not You for a few years there, there wasn't a whole lot of activity, and then all of a sudden, once yeah. the reissue started coming out, yeah. it oh, yeah, there was, was mind blowing. Yeah. I flew to DC for their last show. They did their last show with El Guapo opening, and I said, I'm not missing this, this is the Black Cat. And I flew all the way to DC. You know, I come from there, so I'll go anyway just to visit. And so I said, Well, that's a good reason to go east. And so yeah. I went, saw the last show, and you know, I'm so much the better for it. So great. Awesome. Yeah. I, I'm like a Discord West type in that if you're a discord band and you're touring la you can stay at my house oh we give wow. you the laundry I'm... room the fedex guy will come and take your packages home uh, we'll feed you i've put up many discord bands at my place there's a uh i'm really big on the the whole folk punk movement that's going mostly through like the south and stuff like that in the last couple of years right. and there was a whole scene in pomona where they literally were the way station for all these east coast and south bands so it became this weird place because there was a house and a venue next to the house so everybody just came through because this was the place where they could eat, shower, do laundry, and play a show. Well, that was that was a bit when I was living in San Pedro and all the Recess Records. Yeah. You know, anytime there was a, a like a band affiliated with like FYP, Toys I Kill, or any of the Recess Records bands, like they would end up staying at one of our houses in San Pedro. Look at early uh, SST records, you'll see someone thanked uh, called Iris. That's my mother. Minutemen, Husker, Meat Puppets. St. Vitus. Oh, wow. Laundry yeah. at my mom. Even <laughs> That's just such a they, great they image. They on tour with us. Yeah. They knew. They'd call Iris. Hey, like, oh, great, come over. You know, and <laughs> all the SST bands, very polite young men. And they'd come over and, you know, not break anything. And, you know, D Boone asleep in my mom's living room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, all that happened. And my mom got thanked on a bunch of those records because they all oh, wow. cleaned yeah. their underwear in her little washing machine in her kitchen. Yeah, that's yeah. Awesome. Uh, I. <laughs> Ian Mackay's mom used to put up Black Flag. She was the most popular mom in D.C. <laughs> Black Flag's in your basement? That's how I know. <laughs> and Ian's like, yeah. And I walked out, I'm like, oh, my God! There's Greg Kidd. I met him yeah. in Ian's mama's basement. That, Hi! There's a, the, my parents were kind of really mellow with us, so if there was bands in Hawaii that were like needed a place to stay, like, you know, Ray Capo from uh, Shelter and uh, Youth sure. of Today, like, he slept know, in my right? garage and... Uh, uh, you know, I, um, I, like my dad, like when Quicksand was in town, like he's like, he's like, you like them? And I was like, yeah, he's like, here's some money. Go take them out to like a good Hawaiian place to eat. So I like got to take out Quicksand to, it was just like, it's like, you know, I think, a, you know, parents being so cool about that make my, you like my, feel like the coolest My kid. house is slowly yeah. becoming, because my brother's, you know, started producing bands and he's got his band and they've just started running the touring circuit. They're called Shady Characters. Um, but, uh. And they, we've started waking up with bands from Texas on our couch. It'll be the, my brother will go out somewhere Sunday night to see a band, and we'll have half the bands on the bill asleep in our living sure. room as I'm leaving for yeah, work. There's a lot of that. I mean, in Minneapolis, we used to sleep at someone from Husker Du's place, like Grant Hart. We'd sleep on his floor. <laughs> Husker I love that, would come man. to LA to make their record with Spot or whoever, and they'd sleep at SST. Um, <laughs> the parents' couch tour. <laughs> well, it's just a, it's punk rock, it's man. Yeah. Allies. Because yeah. they don't have any money for a hotel. It's Husker Du. They're like, you know, playing for their next meal. And so no one has money in those days. So we're in Austin, Texas. We're sleeping in the, on the big boy's floor. You know, <laughs> <laughs> what a terrifying place oh, to stay yeah. that much. Yeah. But, but, you know, nice people. Oh, and yeah. um, 
one time we're playing in Ann Arbor, so we sleep at Mike Davis's house, bass player, MC5. I go, like, are we really here? Wow. And he put us up because he's cool That's like awesome. that. And when I had my little apartment in D.C. before I joined Black Flag, one night I've got at least two of DOA, all of the subhumans, <laughs> <laughs> and Jello Biafra has taken my little Sears and Roebuck bed. I'm like, oh, <laughs> wait a minute. I'm getting up for work in three hours at the ice cream store I worked at. And you're sleeping in my bed? Wait a minute, this is my crap apartment. But you know, I wrote Holiday in Cambodia. I'm like, all right. Just so okay. next to him. Playing that card. No, I slept on the floor next to the bed. I'll sing you to sleep. Yeah. And I, I've known Jello since I was like 19. I met him in 1980. Uh, great show. Uh, Sir. Circle Jerks open, then Flipper, then the Dead Kennedys. Jesus Holy shit. Christ. 1980 at the Mubuhe Gardens. Me and Ian, I was out roadieing for Ian's first band. Uh, teen like, Idols. Yeah, yeah. We're going to California. Thought, I'm coming. We, we went on a Greyhound bus. <laughs> was that the one with the, where the Circle Jerks went up to and chased the guy into the car? Well, the That's one of my favorite no stories in, in Get in the Van. They're fans who all ended up in that movie. Um, Decline. Decline. Oh, yeah, yeah. X-Head, Eugene, Brenson, all those guys. Are terrifying. Clockwork Orange time. No, the, <laughs> the members of the, the band, no, they're like, don't swing that at me. Yeah. No, they're like a, musicians. Yeah. They're nice. No, those, those other guys are like <laughs> Huntington Beach surf crazies. Yeah. They're like, I like, they're cool to me, <laughs> thankfully, because I, I don't want to die, because those guys were gnarly. They look at bounces going, like, come on. And Bell's like, no, man, you're too crazy for me. <laughs> and then a year later, I'm performing in front of him. That was the irony. Summer 80, I'm out being youth man on tour with Ian. Summer 81, I'm on stage at the Cuckoo's Nest, August 21st, my first show with Black Flag, with guys looking up from the audience. Uh, not a word I use often, but to, to be historically intact. One guy looked up at me and said, you better be good, faggot. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I hope I pull this off because this audience is going to kill me. And um, yeah. thankfully, I, I cut the mustard. You know, I, I, I was okay. As soon as we started playing, they're like, yeah, and they were all, I was all right with them. But, boy, what a ferocious audience those Huntington Beach dudes were. Yeah. And I noticed in the crowd, I'm like, oh, there's that dude I met last year when I was roading for Ian. But that's where I met Jello Biafra was – Backstage of the Mabuhe, and we all kind of, he was holding court, and we're like, here, Jello Biafra, and <laughs> shook hands. Do you and, have a Jello impression? And, um, mm. What? I said, do you have a Jello impression? I just did it. No. Yeah. There it is now. No. Okay. And yeah. Mine, mor more mine, morphs, yeah, mine <laughs> morphs into Fred Schneider by the third word. Yeah. Nicaragua. Yeah. Uh, and, and I still see Jello to this day. He, he's a good man. He fights the good fight. He's smart and um, loves music and uh, can still sing his ass off. Never lost his voice. That record he did and, uh, with the Melvins. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, he's done Rad. a few with them, I think. He's done record DOA. That's, I yeah. think his bass player now is, is the old bass player in my band, Andrew Weiss, and his brother Jonathan's on drums. That's mm. a ferocious rhythm section. I saw, the, I watched it on YouTube because I was in Belfast last summer doing a show and they said, you know, Jello was here a week ago and I looked it up on YouTube and someone had phone cammed it and I, I watched a few songs. It's good. You know, two guitars on stage sounds real, real strong. Hey, never even. Yeah. Do, is there anything you want to promote while you're here before we let you go? <laughs> 50, no, uh, fifty no. states thing. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it's a tour called Capitalism, doing the capital city of every state in America. It ends on Election Eve at the Nine Thirty Club in Washington. Oh, that's a great. We played there, the Nine Thirty Club. Yeah, we played, that's that a was, great. Uh, I got. I went. The first thing we did when we got there uh, was I just went and I was like, "Who worked here like back in the day?" And there was like a guy who's like, "Oh, it's me." And then I just sat in his office and had him tell the stories. <laughs> yeah, very nice <laughs> staff there. Yeah, he says like the first time I ever went, I snuck in. I was 15. I snuck into an Agent Orange show. And I was like, "Oh, more." 
Yeah, no, that was the well. You know, there's two different there's two different versions of that. Yeah, menu. he was at the, uh, the the he was talking about the original one. Yeah, now the he one with the, the pillar in your face. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, the new one. Well, it's not new anymore, but it's a great it's very menu. nice. But um, yeah, the tour is uh, it's called Capitalism. I'm doing the capital city of every tour. Shepard Ferry just did the poster. It looks really cool. And that tour ends on Election Eve, and then two days later, the next leg of the tour starts, which is uh, multiple nights in cities. I'm doing five New York's, three Toronto's, three Chicago's, three San Francisco's, and five L.A.'s. I'm finishing the tour with five nights at Largo. It finishes December 1st, and it'll be about 181 shows this year. I will go home and collapse. <laughs> For a day, and then back out yeah, again. <laughs> I, I will be, by January 6th, I will be, you know, in December, I, I will be working on two different books. So I'll be working, mm. but I won't be jumping up and grabbing the we got to have you back on early next year if you want to come back on, no you know? Because, like, I mean, I, we honestly, I don't I don't want to stop the podcast now. This is, this is but I but we, I, I, I have to, I got to go to work. But, yeah. I, but I just fucking love... I mean, these are such great stories, even though, I mean, I recognize a lot of the names you're saying. I don't have the emotional connection that, that Kyle and Jonah have, but it's still f- so fucking fascinating to me because I, I understand what's going on, yeah. you know, even as kind of an outsider. And I just, I could honestly could hear stories forever. So if, you know, please come back on early next no, year. No, I, I, I would be happy to. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thanks, and, Henry. And everybody should Thank listen you. to his radio show. Yeah, too. absolutely. KCRW. Yeah, 8 to 10 Saturdays. It's always worth checking out. It's awesome. They stream it uh, for the week after. And there's some guy on the internet. Uh, if you just type in Rollins Archive into the Google, there's a guy who's like like nine years of my radio show just online. You can download it at the right price. Yeah. I don't know the dude. Apparently, he's just a fan. He does it. I've never. I don't know him. But when someone says, "Hey, I, I missed your show," I'm like, f- "See if this website's still up and running." And someone write me back, "Oh my God, it's down yeah. like forty yeah. Like, yeah, and yeah. apparently he still has this site, Rollins Archive. Wow. But yeah, the one with uh, Ian was great. Oh, it was just it that was, was so all cool. Ian's set list. Yeah, it was a great. I it was a great set list, but also just here, it was neat just hearing you guys just kind of hang out yeah, on air. Yeah, but boy, those that is it was a pitch perfect selection of songs. Yeah. yeah. You know, whenever I'm at Ian's house, he always DJs. He'll, he'll, I'll sit down and play with a kid, and he'll just put some record. I'm like, oh, what's that record? You know, oh, I found it for a dollar at some. You know, <laughs> he finds records, and then you go on eBay and try and find it. Eight hundred dollars. Two copies were made, pressed by a leper, and, like, and he got one. And hand delivered, and, and with yeah, the hand still attached. Yeah. 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 Brian Eno licked it. You know? <laughs> yeah, that, no, he has this uncanny ability to walk into a garage at a garage sale and go, "I'll get this one," and, it's and, and you put it on, and you're like, "That's a great record." Yeah. No, he's got an amazing record collection. That's great. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Enjoy your burrito, everybody. All right. Awesome. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground, and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder, 
Had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? Follow Happily Never After Dan and Nancy on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Happily Never After Dan and Nancy early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.